Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who has trimmed the hedges of many small villages. He is the captain. They call me El Guapo. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are very proud to be featuring 120 Days Dry Aged Stout. This is from the brilliant mad scientist over at Evil Twin Brewing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a beer. This is an experience. This is an imperial stout brewed with dry aged malt. It's roasted chocolate, a little burnt, really not dry at all in my opinion, but it is definitely boozy. ABV 17.5% only. And I repeat, only drink this one at home in your own garage. Garage grade four and three quarter bottle caps out of five. And this experience was brought to us by a handful of our good garage friends like Laura in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And a big shout out to Sydney from Bend, Oregon. Next up, we have Kathy in Kenowa, Iowa. Kathy says, Nick, if you can't pronounce that, I will just be from parts unknown. Well, I gave it a shot, Kathy. Hopefully, I got close. And a big we like your jib to Natalie from New York, New York. Next up, we have Hillary from Louisville, Kentucky. And last but not least, we whoa, have. Whoa. S- and last but not least, we have Sarah from Great Falls, Montana. Everybody that we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and donated to this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. And we're a little bit behind on the beer fun shout out, so be patient, you filthy animals. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
real estate agent gets a call from a potential buyer. The young, ambitious real estate agent receives the type of call that all realtors dream of. A motivated buyer wants to purchase a home and has a large budget. The buyer wants to find a place fast. But things that seem too good to be true are usually just that. The agent met with some mysterious clients to show them a beautiful home that met their specifications. But once inside, the agent was brutally and viciously killed. Her attackers fled into the night. Who would want to kill this pretty and vivacious young professional? And why would they set up a sham real estate deal to get to her? And probably the most important thing to ask is why would anyone want her dead? With this crime, it appears that motive may be the fastest road to finding the killer. This week, we will be discussing the true story of the unsolved murder of Lindsay Buziak. The investigation into her killing has been almost lost in the sheer volume of misinformation out there surrounding this case. It is rare to find a case that is so cluttered with false facts, unfounded rumors, baseless allegations, and downright contradictory evidence. What you will hear this week is not what you will hear elsewhere. We will discuss the actual concrete facts as stated by police investigators and sources close to the investigation. All of the other stuff, the rumors and unsubstantiated innuendo, we will get into that when necessary. If you've heard of the case of Lindsay Buziak, or even if you have not, get ready for the truth surrounding this case. This is True Crime Garage, and this is the case of Lindsay Buziak. Victoria is the capital city of British Columbia, the Canadian province, located on the southernmost tip of Vancouver Island. This is close proximity to Seattle on the U.S. side of the border and to the large Canadian city of Vancouver across the water. Victoria has a large population of over 350,000 in its greater metro area, but it feels smaller and more intimate than its numbers suggest. Most people are connected somehow and know or are acquainted with many other locals. In other words, everyone pretty much knows each other or knows of one another. On February 2nd, 2008, a 24-year-old realtor named Lindsay Buziak was scheduled to show a house to some potential clients. Lindsay was new to the business. She started about a year before, and at this time, she had not sold that many homes yet. But she loved the job, and she was enthusiastic about her future in the residential housing business. Lindsay was a very outgoing young woman who was energetic and ambitious, and she had a lot of friends. She also had a sister named Sarah, with whom she was very close. And she was also close with her mother, Evelyn, who lived in the area. And she had a good relationship with her father, Jeff. 
Lindsay's parents were divorced and lived hundreds of miles apart. Lindsay mentioned to some colleagues and friends that she was excited because she had been contacted by some very motivated potential new clients. This has been backed up in interviews with her close circle. Lindsay received a call on Friday, February 1st. The call was from a woman. And from Lindsay's notes in her day planner, and from what friends and colleagues have related, we can piece together the conversations she had with this female client. The woman caller spoke in a thick accent that Lindsay could not specifically identify, but which led her to nickname the woman and her husband, the Mexicans, in her cell phone. This woman called Lindsay out of the blue. She said that she and her husband were coming to the area for three days to look at houses. They were beneficiaries of a corporate relocation package, and they had to find a house very quickly. She specified that they saw a new three-bedroom, three-bath home, which was move-in ready, 15 to 20 minutes from downtown with a large master bedroom and a separate space for a housekeeper. What truly perked Lindsay's ears? The woman said they could spend up to $1 million on a home. Now, Lindsay did not receive this call on her business phone line at the REMAX office that she worked out of. She received this call on her personal cell phone. Her cell number was available, posted publicly on some of her listings. Lindsay was a lesser-known junior agent, so she did find it strange that the woman contacted her. So Lindsay asked the woman how she got her information. The woman told her she was referred to her by a former client of Lindsay's. She told Lindsay this person's name, and it has been reported that Lindsay called the former client, but that lady was traveling and could not be reached. In any event, This $1 million deal would be very big for a junior agent. And Lindsay jumped at the chance to find homes that would meet the client's requirements. Over the next 24 hours, there were six calls back and forth between Lindsay and the clients. Of course, we do not know what was actually said during those calls. We do know that the couple and Lindsay made an appointment to see a specific house one that was listed by some other REMAX agents, likely known to Lindsay. The appointment was set for 5.30 on Saturday, February 2nd, to see the home at 1702 de Sousa Place in Saanich. This is an upscale suburb of Victoria. There are reports that they scheduled showings at five different homes, and 1702 de Sousa was to be the first of these appointments. Now, some reports say that in one of the calls, the female client told Lindsay that she would be attending the showing alone as her husband was ill. There are other reports that say that it was the opposite, that Lindsay was told only the husband would attend. The fact is, we don't know for sure, as only Lindsay and the clients know the content of those conversations. Now, the house on DeSosa Place was a new build that was sitting on the market for close to a year. The asking price was $964,000. It was situated on a new subdivision on a cul-de-sac named for the developer of the new street, John DeSosa. His company owned the 1702 property. He reportedly was present 
on a building site nearby on that day and wrapped things up by 5 p.m. and left for the day, as did the construction workers building another house on the street. The cul-de-sac was located off of a residential road. This is Torquay Drive, which was lined with houses. Now, we're going to have two eyewitnesses from the neighborhood that night. And what these two witnesses reported seeing was a young, dark-haired woman, presumably to be Lindsay, Mm -hmm. greeting and shaking hands with two other adults outside of the DeSosa Place property that evening. Yeah, one male and one female. So one witness was driving by in a vehicle. He confirmed seeing three people. The other witness was a little more detailed. This was a woman walking her dog. She was able to provide police with a description of the couple that Lindsay was talking to. Mm -hmm. This was a man and a woman. It appeared to her that the couple did not know the young brunette, did not know Lindsay. She also reported a car parked in the driveway. So note here, we have one vehicle, three people. This car that was parked in the driveway was later confirmed to be Lindsay's vehicle. After shaking hands, the three then walked toward the home. The lockbox to the DeSosa Place address was accessed at 5.29 p.m. This would be when Lindsay used the key in the lockbox to enter the home with the clients. So no car other than Lindsay's was parked in the cul-de-sac or in the driveway of the home, according to these two witnesses. At 5.45 p.m., Lindsay's boyfriend, Jason Zalo, he's a mortgage broker and a realtor at the same company as Lindsay. He pulled up outside of the home. Jason was accompanied by a friend named Cohen Oatman. Cohen worked with Jason, and the two were on a hockey team together, and they actually had a game later that evening. Jason was exchanging text with Lindsay prior to his arrival, but Jason, not being able to reach his girlfriend, eventually went up to the front door of the home and tried the handle. The door was locked. Jason recognized that during a showing, the door should not be locked. Further, he saw Lindsay's shoes, black heels, lying on the floor in the entryway. Which isn't that uncommon because a lot of times when they have showings, they make you remove your shoes. This was a bit, he found it to be strange, but only in combination with his inability to reach her. So you got to factor in all these things. He sees the shoes in the entryway. The door is locked, which he found odd. Plus, she is aware that he is going to meet her at this property, and she's not responding to any of his texts. Well, and also, he's meeting her there because she feels odd about the meeting in general. She feels a little suspicious of these two individuals, so she kind of asks him to be there. Something doesn't feel right to her. I mean, that she's, one, getting a million-dollar listing call with being such a young agent. And then on top of that, the accent doesn't make sense to her. And then again, on top of that, now one of them is going to be sick. And so they're just going to show up as one person instead of a couple. Well, let's go through what he found, because there is a good reason for debate on his motivation for meeting her at that property that night. So once he is kind of set on alarm here, right? The door's locked. He's unable to reach her. He is then going to interrupt the showing. 
And this is, he rang the doorbell. He knocked repeatedly. When no one answered, he called 911 at 6.05 p.m., requesting police to do a welfare check on the property. Now, not satisfied with waiting for the cops, Jason and Cohen circled the house and noted that the French doors facing the fenced patio on Torquay Drive on that side, uh, they were open. So Cohen got over the fence, and this has been reported two ways. Some reports say that Jason boosted Cohen over the fence. Others say that there was a gap in the fence where some boards were missing, and Cohen slipped through there while Jason was on the phone with 911. Now, Cohen entered the home through the French doors that were already open. He walked inside, passing through the downstairs to the front door, unlocking it to let Jason inside. Then a second 911 call came in at 6.11 p.m., this time from inside the house at 1702 De Sosa. The caller, Jason, reported finding Lindsay on her back lying on the floor in the corner of the master bedroom, seemingly dead and lots of blood in the room. There was no one else in the house, and they had not seen anyone leave. The police arrived, and Jason and Cohen were taken to the police station for questioning. Lindsay was beyond help. The CBC reported that she died of multiple stab wounds. They have never confirmed the extent of the injuries. They are keeping this information to themselves. The scene was secured. Crime scene tape was put up around the house. Crime scene techs began processing the home and the detectives combed through the home and canvassed the neighborhood. So police have not officially confirmed that the 911 caller was Jason or Cohen, and they have not even officially confirmed that it was they who found Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Remember, they're keeping a lot of this stuff to themselves. But we know this because Jason has given some interviews, notably to Dateline and participated in a police reenactment of what happened when he entered the home through the front door. Saanich Police Sergeant Chris Horsley has also given interviews relaying Jason's movements as he arrived at the house and found Lindsay. So let's get into what we know about Lindsay's movements that day, the text between Jason and Lindsay, and what was found at the murder scene. So Lindsay and Jason were living together. They had ate lunch that day at a restaurant called Sauce. They paid the bill there at 4.24 p.m., and they left in separate vehicles. We aren't certain where Lindsay went directly after this lunch, but some reports state that she told Jason that she was going home to change her clothes before her meeting. Mm -hmm. Jason left to go meet Cohen. And the two went to an auto shop called SHC, where Jason was doing a mortgage deal. The two were seen on surveillance camera outside of SHC at 5.30 p.m. This is them getting into Jason's Range Rover. Now, around this time, Jason texted Lindsay saying, I'll come meet you and I'll be 10 to 15 minutes or so. Lindsay responded, okay, I'll see you in a bit. I got to go. The Mexicans are here. Let's be clear. We don't know if these individuals are in fact Mexican, right? This is simply a nickname 
that, that Lindsay gave to these potential clients. I find this all very strange for a multitude of reasons. One, we can see online her daily planner where she took notes from the call that she received from the woman with the thick accent that Lindsay could not identify. Right. I, what I find weird here is it doesn't seem to indicate, well, not that it doesn't seem, it does not indicate in her notes the name of these potential clients. Right. And then on top of that, in her cell phone, she nicknames them the Mexicans. This based off of what she said was a, a weird accent. Right. I also, I think it wasn't just that it was weird that it came off phony to her. So at 5.38 p.m., Jason texted Lindsay's phone again, this time saying, just a couple of minutes away. This text was never read on Lindsay's end. At 5.41 p.m., Lindsay's BlackBerry made a call to a contact in her phone. This is to a friend that Lindsay had not spoken to in quite some time. The friend can hear some things, but it is muffled and jumbled, and there's really nothing clearly audible to the friend. Police believe that this call was a butt dial, that somehow during the attack, a button on Lindsay's BlackBerry was pressed, and the call went out as she was being attacked. Sergeant Horsley said, quote, So we believe that was actually at the point of attack, when the couple attacked Lindsay." Somehow it hit buttons on the BlackBerry and it sent out a phone call. End quote. The BlackBerry was found in Lindsay's pocket after she was killed. As said, the autopsy findings in Lindsay's case have never been released. We know that she was stabbed to death. A press conference held by the Saanich police confirmed that Lindsay died from, quote, multiple stab wounds. But police have never explained or expanded on this information. Right. The, the rumor is what over 40 stab wounds. Oh man. Let, okay. Let's get into some of these rumors and just a real quick disclaimer. This is going to be one of the more brutal parts of, of this case, but mm -hmm. keep in mind, these are not facts. These are what, what I'm and calling speculation. I'm calling these internet facts where they're, they're really just rumor. Okay. Right. So ones that I found was that she was stabbed 54 times in the chest and head. Mm -hmm. one stating that she was stabbed 40 times and then one that, as you mentioned, stabbed over 40 times. Mm -hmm. She was stabbed where her new breast implants. Yeah. Where Lindsay had a, a recently got uh, breast enhancements and, and those were mutilated. They said, right. So yeah, to further that rumor, people say that the, they were deliberately or intentionally mutilated. And then we have the other statement of that she was nearly decapitated. Again, to be perfectly clear, these are just rumors. There has never been any official confirmation of the extent of her injuries or the number of times she was stabbed or the bodily areas where she was stabbed. There's many, many cases that the person dies from knife injuries that you hear rumors of almost decapitated. Yes. So we have a source that is close to the investigation, and this is author Gary Rogers, whom we were able to talk to while covering this case. He's working on a book about the case. Now, Gary says 
that he was privy to the autopsy report. And he did share some of this information with us. And this is information I have not heard elsewhere. He says Lindsay was the victim of between 10 to 15 stab wounds. Mm -hmm. To be clear and to credit Gary Rogers, he's being somewhat vague on that number because we're not going to compromise the investigation. That, That has not been released to the public. Now, this quote from Sergeant Horsley provides some more information, stating when they went upstairs, there's a master bedroom and an in-suite bathroom. We know, meaning law enforcement, that when Lindsay turned to show the in-suite bathroom, she was then attacked from the rear. There's no defensive wounds whatsoever. We don't believe she had any pre-indication that something was amiss. Gary tells us that Lindsay was, in fact, attacked from behind, almost certainly with a large knife, and incapacitated by severing her central nervous system. This means her spinal cord was severed by the knife. She was then rolled over and stabbed in the chest area and down to her abdomen. Judging by this information, it seems to me that whoever did this wanted to be 100% certain that she was dead. Now, no weapon was found at the scene. Lindsay was found on the floor of the master bedroom near the bathroom. Her body fell so that it would have been visible to someone coming up the stairs and glancing into the master bedroom. So the injuries to the spine, they think, were done purposefully? That the person knew what they were doing? Possibly. That that's certainly a, a possibility, mm-hmm. or it could also it could also be just happenstance. But what I think we can point out and say for certain, given this information, is she was in fact attacked from behind. Did not know that she was about to be attacked because there was no defensive wounds. Mm-hmm. And I really think that there's there's multiple areas that you could have hit with that first strike that would have left her incapacitated. Lindsay was found lying on her back. There was zero evidence of sexual assault. Lindsay's wallet, purse, cell phone, and jewelry were all found at the scene undisturbed. Lindsay's business suit soaked up much of the blood, although there was still plenty left at the scene. How much blood would have been on the killers is anyone's guess. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. 
Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, 
you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious, from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Maybe Passing. you're back. <laughs> Watch your back. Watch your back. We will be at the Ohio Crime and Corruption event at the Ohio History Connection in Columbus. That is this Saturday. We will be talking for about an hour, and we are scheduled to go on at 2.30 p.m. So if you want more information or ticket information, you can find that at our website, True Crime Garage. Dot com. Yeah, and after we're done talking, we'll be there for a little bit afterwards to meet with anybody that shows up. That's right. That's right. And if you still need more True Crime Garage, don't forget about the Stitcher app and our other show on Stitcher Premium, the wonderful, very highly touted show that everybody tells everybody else about. Award-winning. Award-winning. Mm. It's number one in Japan. It's called <laughs> Off the Record. Right. And and all, everything we just said is off the record. Mm-hmm. Okay, Captain. So the choice of weapon here in this case really and unfortunately makes a lot of sense, right? It's A knife was used in this murder. Now, unlike a gun, this is going to leave little forensic evidence behind. It's going to make no noise and does not require a permit. So less of a trail here, right? Canada has much stricter gun laws than the United States, and a knife would just simply be easier, quieter, and leave no trail. But the other thing that we can figure out, too, is that this knife was brought to the house by the killers. And taken away. Yeah. And given our source, he says it was a rather large knife. So if, in fact, this was a large knife... You do have to wonder how it was concealed. And I'm also guessing that the attack taking place upstairs rather than downstairs on the ground level, this was also deliberate. So one, you would be leaving the body left away from prying eyes, the upstairs in compared to in comparison to the ground level where anybody could just walk up and look through a window, right? The other thing too is if the attack does not go as planned then there's a longer escape route 
for Lindsay to get away from her attackers. And again, it just seems to be deliberate. You know, they knew that they were going to be shown the house. So let's wait until she takes us upstairs or let's suggest, Hey, can we see the upstairs? And then when her back is turned, the attack went down. Now, Jason and Cohen, as we said, were actually taken to into police custody. Yeah, they were actually, I believe, handcuffed and, and taken into custody. So this is obviously for several different reasons, right? They found the body, and they're at the scene of the murder scene. Now, Jason probably had blood on him. We do know that he attempted CPR. This is in spite of him saying that he could tell that Lindsay was dead. Now, Jason's a pretty big man. I think he's like 6'2", 6'3". 230, 240. Yeah. And, yeah. And he was, uh, I believe, an amateur hockey player. Or semi-pro. Yeah. Something something of Semi-pro that nature. Semi-pro, Is there a difference? Well, I think you're you're partially professional. <laughs> <laughs> Much like your, your conduct on this show. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he tells police that he arrived at the house around 5.45 p.m. Now, I want everybody to really pay attention here because... We're not just we're not going back through stuff that we've already discussed. We're going to go into more detail about what his movements were that night and that day, right? So he says he arrived around around 5:45 p.m. at the house that she was showing. He and Cohen stayed in the car. They parked in the cul-de-sac and they were watching the house. Well, let's back up. He, he was running a little bit later than he would told Lindsay he would be. But that's because when they left the car dealership that they actually had to call to get directions. Uh, they weren't really familiar with how to get to that house. And I know there are some people out there that are saying, hey, we're missing something, a big part of this case, which is hey. Jason may or may not have seen the killers when yeah. he pulled up near the property. I just want to, so we can all get a clear understanding of what may be going on that we go through these items one at a time. So they are parked. Jason and Cohen are parked in the cul-de-sac and they are watching the house. He says they arrived at 5:45 PM. Then at 5:55 PM, he texts Lindsay saying, are you okay? But receives no response. Jason then moved the car to an actual parking spot on Torquay drive. Mm-hmm. And he says he got out and he went up and looked through the front door glass. This is when he saw Lindsay's shoes. He became concerned and made some calls. These calls were him trying to gain access to the home. Remember, the door is locked at this time. Yeah. And this is, in fact, backed up by cell phone records. When this didn't work, when he couldn't gain access to the house, this is when Jason made the first 911 call at 6.05 p.m. Now, crime scene investigators tracking fingerprints and footprints, they have verified Jason and Cohen's stories about their travel into and throughout the house. The home had been thoroughly cleaned the morning before the showing and was empty. Nobody was living in this house. Right. So it was very easy for them to establish what took place or to verify that their stories were in fact correct. Well, let's stay on that for one, one second. Cause the house was basically empty 
is ready to be shown. And this is one of the reasons why they start rolling out the idea of a robbery because all of Lindsay's belongings are still there. Mm-hmm. And then there's obviously nothing to be taken in the house. Again, you got to question the motivation, right? Right. And the while we're talking about evidence, the only DNA that was recovered from the house is was Lindsay's. Mm-hmm. Jason and Cohen were released after this initial questioning. And Jason did obtain a lawyer. Now, with his lawyer's assistance, Jason cooperated with police in performing the reenactment walkthrough of his actions when he entered the front door of the home. He says immediately he ran up the stairs calling for Lindsay, and this has caused a lot of people to be suspicious of Jason. Why is that? So after this video and after the interview with Jason was aired on Dateline in 2010, people were wondering how they're pointing out and thinking that he may have known in advance prior to walking through the front door that Lindsay would be found upstairs. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing we got to, if you're going to make that leap, let's also keep some other possible leaps in mind as well. Right. You have to wonder it's possible since Cohen already ran through the downstairs to get to the front door that Jason may have just anticipated that Lindsay was not on that ground level floor. Right. And we also have the police statements of her body could be easily seen from somebody who was going up the stairs and looking in the direction of the master bedroom. Well, now in his own words, it took him, he said maybe two seconds from the time he opened the door to get up the steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he knows that his friend by this time had already run through the back door, through the French doors all the way through to the front door. Yeah. I, I but I could see why they're suspicious of that. I think that's something as far as investigators uh, that they want to question. And you kind of see them do that during this uh, reenactment or this walkthrough. So one thing that I really want to dive into right here before we get to all this other stuff with Jason is the whole reason for him being at the property that she was showing in the first place. All right. This is where I'm going to try to really start to cut through some of the crap that's out there and try to present what I believe is to be real. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is another reason why people are suspicious of Jason. And this stems from one narrative that has really taken over this case. The story is Lindsay was nervous about the showing and the prospect of meeting strangers whose accents she was, was not familiar with. And that she in fact asked Jason to attend this showing for her protection on February 4th. This is two days after the murder. CBC reported that Lindsay's colleagues said that she had quote, a bad feeling about the cell phone calls. Right. CTV news attributes this quote to her friend, Vicki Mackey. This is a story repeated by Lindsay's father, Jeff, but there is evidence that this story in fact is incorrect or at the very least, extremely exaggerated. Okay. So for one thing, Lindsay was a smart, ambitious, professional young woman. She knew that part of her realtor's job involved showing properties to people. Right. 
often people she's never met before. Jason, for his part, he told police that he arranged to meet Lindsay at 1702 de Sosa place because he was the listing agent on the SHC property. Now, remember, this is the property that he left with Cohen to go over to de Sosa place, right? The reason why he was going to meet Lindsay there, in Jason's words, was not for her protection. He was just stopping by there to pick up some paperwork. This was just going to be a quick stop, talk with her briefly, grab some paperwork. Mm -hmm. Lindsay, the reason for this is Lindsay was representing a buyer, a potential buyer who made an offer on the SHC property that Jason was the listing agent for. Okay, so the SHC owner made a counteroffer and Jason wanted to get that to Lindsay to submit it to her client ASAP. Anybody that's in the real estate business, anybody that's in sales will tell you if you got if you got talks going on back and forth and you think that you're going to be able to get a deal done, you get that deal done, right? You don't, you don't give somebody time to talk themselves out of purchasing. Well, it depends on if you're a professional or if you're semi-professional. So it seems like Jason would have had a different reason for being at the house. And this in fact does change a lot of what one could think or be suspicious of. Changes it drastically because my first question in all this is if you're, there to protect your girlfriend or even your friend or whatever. You're a real estate agent. It's not that uh, these are people, these are people, people, right? Mm -hmm. They want to, they wouldn't feel uncomfortable pulling up in the driveway. They wouldn't feel uh, uncomfortable interrupting the showing because it's as simple as, Hey, I work with Lindsay. I am here. Um, if you guys need me, what a great property it's, you know, or I'm here as part of the showing, they don't need to know why you're part of the showing. Exactly. And if you are in fact there for her protection, then you are there for part of the showing. Right. And so why park you're, you're, you're six, three, 240 pounds hockey. This, this guy doesn't have a problem if, if there's going to be a fight. So again, the, the story, the narrative has been, she felt uncomfortable. Jason is going to go there, you know, for her protection. Again, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And that makes you really question Jason. But then when Jason says, well, no, that's not why I was going there. I had to give her paperwork. Well, if you're just giving somebody paperwork, you're not going to be that concerned that you're running a little bit late. You're not going to be that concerned on yeah because you're technically not late right right if you were there for the showing if he were to be there to be part of the showing he would have been late however what he's stating is i'm there to have a a quick meeting with Lindsay regarding this property that i have the seller she has the potential buyer we have to do some quick paperwork so in fact he is actually there for another purpose which is going to take place after the showing and so I, he's not even, he's not late. He's not part of the showing. And therefore, like you said, if he was there for protection, he would have been late and you would have anticipated he parked the car and go into the house and say, Hey, sorry, I'm late. 
I was supposed to Surprise. be here for the, for the I'm show. Here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd think, again, yeah, I, I back up all that stuff. I, I think of, but then it becomes, it's it's convoluted. Which story is correct? Because what's weird, too, is they, a little bit of both can be correct at the same time. She could have felt weirded out by this girl that she thinks is given, put in on a fake accent. That's a little strange, but you got a million dollar listing. So maybe you mentioned that to your father. Eh, it seems a little strange, kind of a little weirded out by it, but we'll see what happens. And even if she mentions that to a friend, okay, maybe that's just some conversation. If that conversation didn't happen with Jason and if his reason for being there wasn't for protection, then his story makes sense. So I'm not going to throw the father under the bus or the friend under the bus to say that she didn't say those things, but that didn't, that doesn't mean that she went the extra step to say, Hey, Jason, I want you to be there at a certain time and and to be here at the showing with me. The other thing too, you know, the Sandwich police, they spoke to all parties around this case, her colleagues, her friends, And their official statement on this is that they say while Lindsay felt the showing was unusual because she was not the listing agent, she wasn't apprehensive about it. Right. And let's go over that a little bit because the way the story kind of reads is that they were just like, hey, we're just looking for a house. I believe this first house, the, the murder scene house, was one that they actually picked out does that make sense when 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 the quote-unquote mexicans called her this well that's a that again that's why i was quick to point out that other than Lindsay's notes and some conversations that she had with colleagues and such we don't know exactly what was discussed on those phone calls right and that has been something that's been hotly debated too. How did they end up at this property? Right. Was it at the client's suggestion? Was it at Lindsay's suggestion or was it somebody else? Well, again, I'm going to go back to what I heard. The, the logical thing is that at some point Lindsay was telling her friend or her father that she thought it was a little strange that they called her and not the listing agent of that house. So to me, that is, that's, she's going, well, why are you calling me when you could have called the listing agent of that house? So to me, they knew about that house. To me, that house was, they brought that house into the equation. So I saw her notes from the initial phone call. Yeah. There's no address that she wrote down in her notes. And so what that leads me to believe, I'm not saying that I'm right. I don't, I'm not going to pretend that I know, but what that would lead me to believe is that that property was not discussed during that phone call and was not brought up by the clients. Well, it could have been as simple as that. She just Googled it and then left it up and didn't put it in our notes. But I, I, I see uh, your logic behind Because that. she wrote down like what they, what they were looking for. Yeah. She wrote down three bedroom, three bath, space for a housekeeper, separate living area for housekeeper, large master bedroom. I'm just saying that the, the idea you know, general that general distance from downtown. 
Right. I'm just saying the idea that this rumor is out there that she's saying, hey, it's kind of weird that they called me and not the listing agent of this house. The fact that that kind of rumor of that conversation is out there leads me to believe that the, the Mexicans knew about this property, which would make some sense too, though, because we know that they're not trying to buy a house. We know we now know that they were they were leading her somewhere and they were going to murder her. And so why wouldn't you want to pick the location? You well, not only that, why wouldn't you want to pick a, a vacant house? You right. know, like where I said, I that believe nobody lives in. I believe the attack going down upstairs is deliberate. That's that's for the purpose of them not finding her body as quickly. Right, and then which same, would make me again. If somebody lived there, then you're like they they have to return home at some point. Right, but again, her conversation about why would they call me when there's a listing agent? Well, that on this was house. the pol- that was the police's statement. Right, right. We don't know that she actually said those words. But what I'm saying is, again, then it go another logical step is if you're the one planning this murder, planning this attack, why wouldn't you want to know everything about the property? So you're the one that found the property. Jason, in the public's eye, is, I mean, the only way to look at this, Captain, would be to say that in the public's eye, he's likely the number one suspect, according to the internet. And there is concern because of two variations of the story that he told to police about something he saw that night. This Mm -hmm. is something we touched on earlier, but we have not gotten into yet. Okay, so on Dateline, on the Dateline episode about this case, Jason told Sleepy Josh Mankiewicz that he saw two shadow, shadowy figures through the frosted glass of the front door. Mm-hmm. He assumed, Jason assumed, that they were the couple that Lindsay was meeting. But on True Crime Daily, Sergeant Chris Horsley said that Jason saw the killers from his car as the front door of the house opened saying, quote, the killers were actually about to walk out the front door and leave. He turned into the cul-de-sac and interrupted them leaving. If he meaning Jason had been five seconds later, he would have driven right into the suspects walking out of the house into the driveway. Right. And it's, it's believed that he got a pretty clear look at the male, but not so much the female. So, According to the sergeant, Jason told police that the couple turned around and closed the door and that he actually Mm. saw them or, as you said, at least the man. And Horsley goes on to say, quote, and his assumption is these are the clients and the showing is just starting as the door closes. Quote, he then parks outside because he is waiting for the showing to end. But the showing didn't end. Lindsay never emerged from the home, and eventually Jason called 911. Mm-hmm. So let's let's dive into this real quick here. According to Sergeant Horsley, Jason interrupts these two leaving, but Jason doesn't know that Lindsay has been attacked at this point. He actually thinks that they just turn around and that they're walking into the home and the showing is about to begin. And that's why he kind of just sits there and chills for a minute. But then when he doesn't hear back from Lindsay and when Lindsay and nobody else leaves the home, then he's starting to question what's going on. Okay. So 
here's a big problem with these two stories. One, what was said on Dateline and what was said by the sergeant on, on True Crime Daily. This looks like it's two different stories, right? Yeah. So the Dateline episode made, made it appear that Jason only saw people through the glass of the front door. When he actually said he could see two people through the glass only after they went back inside the house upon seeing his car. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is one of those weird situations where it's not two variations of, of a story. He's not telling two different stories. It's just different portions of the same story. It's just people reporting the story differently. Right. So the Dateline episode made Jason come across as telling two different stories. Now Uh the Saanich police and this is one thing that I think is was Keith Morrison on the episode. Um, did he go? Aha. Well, I, I know that. Why he was, would Jason be telling us? He was talking differently to, like to sleepy before. Josh Mankowitz. I like Josh a lot. Oh, I do too. He's a very nice guy. I do too. He's, He's a great drinking partner. He looks half asleep during his interviews. He looks half asleep when you're sometimes drinking fully him. asleep during mm, the interviews. Go. So um, real quick. Here, then here's, Jason pulls up to the house. Well, real quick, here's the thing that that people are missing in this case. And this is where you can't have you can't have this whole idea that Jason told two different stories. It doesn't where it gained legs and went off walking on its own, it needs to we can very quickly remove those legs. There should not be a story here because the Saanich police held a very unusual press conference. This is shortly after the Dateline episode aired. Mm-hmm. In this press conference, the Saanich police said that the episode resulted in rampant speculation that Jason and his family were responsible for Lindsay's murder. Police reiterated in the press conference that Jason and his family are not suspects in the case. So what that tells me is... The yeah, wh- which is, I think, a stupid line anyways, because we know now or what we think we know is that they didn't find any DNA in the house other than Lindsay's, but they did ask Jason to submit a DNA test. And as far as I know, he's never submitted that DNA test. Now again, goes from the crime scene, gets handcuffed, goes downtown, you know, extensive interview interrogation goes back with his lawyer to actually go through the property, do walkthroughs, being very cooperative, but they ask for DNA. Again, when you lawyer up, what's your lawyer going to tell you? No, we're not submitting DNA. So I don't know if I put that so much on Jason, but if that rumor is true, then you can't sit there and tell me that you that he's cleared and they're not suspects. Okay, so let's stay on this for a little bit. So we have a murdered young realtor. Yeah. Mysterious foreign clients. Virtually no forensic evidence that the police will discuss and no clues as to the killer's identities or motives. So let's go through what we do know. According to Sergeant Horsley, we know from forensic evidence that both the man and female did go through the home. This is his words. Right. He says, quote, we do have evidence of them leaving the home. However, we don't have anything in the form of DNA or fingerprints, end quote. Now, thanks to our source, Gary Rogers, 
we can tell you exactly what this evidence is. According to Gary, investigators were able to track sock and nylon impressions of Lindsay and two others throughout the house. Mm-hmm. They found a bloody trail of footprints, one in a larger wool blend pattern sock, the other a smaller, more feminine nylon print, leaving bloody prints leading from the upstairs down to the foyer. This probably where they presumably picked up their footwear, their shoes, and out the French doors leading to the patio. Now, based on this, police could tell pretty much exactly what happened in the home and determine that the female and male couple seen with Lindsay were almost certainly the perpetrators of her murder. It seems that they just got lucky that there was a hole in the fence so that they could sneak out of the patio and exit onto the street. Yeah, got lucky or they knew. Uh, They knew this house in advance. So... But it but it does seem that their exit plan was to leave out the front door the way that they came in. But this was got all messed up when Jason drove up to the property. Right, but they parked on a different road, or we can assume they well, we, parked we, on a different road. Well, that 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 is a good question. Um, they didn't park on that road. We know that. Now, could they have had a getaway car, getaway driver, where they dropped off? Right, where they picked up. That's also Did a they possibility. Uber? Yeah. So again, who are these two people? We know that per police statements that they are most 100%, almost 100% the perpetrators of Lindsay's murder. And back to the two eyewitnesses, the lady walking her dog saw two people in the driveway with Lindsay. The description she provided is of a six foot tall Caucasian man in his mid thirties with a medium build, dark hair. Now, the woman walking her dog mm-hmm. only saw the man from the back. She didn't get a, a look at the front of him, okay? Mm-hmm. And she also described a Caucasian woman in her mid-30s to 40s, medium height and build, with shoulder-length blonde hair. Now, she only saw the woman from the side. The woman she described was wearing a dress. The dress was a wavy pattern in white, black, and reddish pink. This is described as a very distinctive dress, and actually police wondered at the time if it was worn specifically to distract any witnesses from noticing any facial features of the two Mm -hmm. or any other distinguishing characteristics. And it wasn't reported that the man was wearing a brown jacket of some kind. From my notes, I don't have anything regarding a brown jacket, but keep in mind the other eyewitness was driving his car. So he only got like a glimpse right. of these two people. And I, I bring that up because I'm not saying it happens all the time, but you, we have this reddish pink black dress, man wearing a bl- brown jacket. Chances are if the, the, this couple left together, then they would change the jacket to a black jacket and they would match on some level. Um, my gut feeling tells me that these people didn't leave that they live in separate houses. That's what my gut feeling is telling me. Um, and I know that sounds silly based off of color coordination, but that's my gut feeling. They're not, they're not wearing some type of uniform to indicate that yeah. they're together. No, I know it sounds silly, but I, I, that's my gut feeling. Well, is, is regarding, the man went to pick up the woman and she got in the car. Eh, we don't match. We don't match. 
regarding the dress, I think the dress is very important because it is described as very distinctive. Again, it was a wavy pattern in, in white, black, and reddish pink. The police went on to say that because it was so distinctive, they thought that maybe the dress would actually lead them to the, the killer, or at least to whoever the woman right. was that, that attended that showing, right? So, But their, their statement was, quote, we think we may have even found the exact brand of the dress. It wasn't a designer high-end name brand. Unfortunately, it was something that could commonly be purchased in a department store. So, unfortunately, the dress did not pan out for police. Well, I think it had maybe possibly two purposes. One, to distract people so they're not looking at facial features. But I think, on the other hand, if it's red and pink, if, you, if you're leaving a it's house... It's a reddish pink. So, it's it's actually a black and white dress with a reddish pink um, wavy pattern Right, on it. but what I'm saying is, um, so you're leaving a house with some blood on you, it might distract people from the of the fact that you have blood on you it's possible i personally i think that whatever they were wearing that day was to look as if they should be looking at a home that cost over nine hundred thousand dollars okay that's that's why i think when when they get this description when law enforcement gets to the description of this dress i think that's why they immediately thought that it could have been a higher end designer brand that there would have been less of, and they would have had a chance of tracing it in some form or fashion. Now, a year after the murder, police released a sketch of the blonde female seen by the witness in uh, profile. Unfortunately, this did not lead to any leads. Now, police examined Lindsay's phone and her day planner and found the phone number for the, quote, Mexicans, as she called them. They traced the phone number and found something startling. The phone used was a burner phone, purchased with cash the previous November at a convenience store in Vancouver. There was no surveillance footage of the phone purchase. Now keep in mind, it wasn't that the store didn't have cameras. It was more so that this took place so long before right. nobody had asked for this footage. Eventually, eventually they lose it or, you know, copy yeah. over it, mm -hmm. anything like that. So the uh, burner phone was activated online just days before the actual murder. And it was activated under a name, uh, Paulo Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. P-A-O-L-O -O Rodriguez. I spelled that just because I probably mispronounced it. And was listed to a business address. This business was located in Vancouver. Now, to be perfectly clear, when they registered the phone and to get the phone number, they had to provide an address. Okay? So they provided an address to a business, and it's been determined that this business is unrelated to anything in this case. Right. Now, the first call on that phone, the first call made to Lindsay was possibly on January 31st, 2008, and it came from the Vancouver area. The phone then traveled to Victoria on Friday, February 1st, 2018. This is by way of the two-hour ferry from Vancouver. This is confirmed by cell phone pings along the way. 
and it was used again to call Lindsay more than once that day and again on February 2nd, which was the day of the killing. The phone was never used again after the murder, and it was never it's never been found. The phone was only ever used for one thing, communicating with Lindsay. Sergeant Horsley says, quote, it's a level of planning that clearly shows Lindsay Buziak was the target. Thank you, Captain, and thank you to all of you out there for listening and telling a friend. Please join us back here in the garage tomorrow for part two. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't live. you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aw, let me just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not